0: today we'll be reading from Matthew 12, 46 through 50, which can be found on page 818 in the Bible. That's Matthew 12, 46 through 50, page 818. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. Asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not sure your view on prophecy, but I bet you many hope that Jackie is a prophetess with her uh, prayer there. Hey, it's fun even to have the sounds of motherhood in the room. Um, let me just pray for us again, and then I'll tell you why we're in this text, and we'll jump in. So Jesus, now we come to you and ask that your words would sink into our hearts. I think what you did in this text would have been both shocking and healing for people in the room who would have heard you say this. So would you do that for us now in this moment? Would you awaken us to your kingdom? Would you heal us? Would you bring the good news of the gospel to bear on our lives and hearts that your adoption of rebellious and um, dead and um, enemies into your kingdom would come as great news for us? Would it use... um, would you use this text to soothe wounds, to, um, to help them to encounter us in powerful ways uh, and do more than we can do on our own? Uh, do more than we want you to do? Um, and would you do what we're asking you to do? Both those things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if there are still kids in the room who want to go to class, you're welcome to. You can be dismissed. We're going uh, to figure out dismissal there, but if you'd like to go, your teachers are in the back. i um, glad you guys are with us. Hey, so maybe you're new with us or you've been around a little bit. Let me just explain where we are in this text. We've been through the series in Matthew and we've taken a couple of breaks. We've talked about Sabbath for a couple of weeks from the beginning of chapter 12. Um, And then we were just like two weeks away from a passage that mentioned mothers on Mother's Day. So I thought, let's just fast forward a couple of sections. We'll talk about this text and then we'll go back again the next two weeks. I think it's a fitting passage for what's on our hearts and minds this morning, and and to be really honest, the next section in where we were in Matthew 12 was about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which didn't feel quite like a Mother's Day text, and so I thought we could just go forward uh, just a smidgen to to take this text, but let me kind of put it in context for you. Jesus has been talking to his disciples about what it means to follow him, and he's been telling them to anticipate conflict and trouble. He said, the kingdom of God is so worth it that as you follow after God, there will be times and moments where your allegiance to God means that you are out of step with the culture, and they will struggle with that. They'll even despise you. He says that in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, we get a story of one of Jesus's close friends, John the Baptist, actually his cousin, one who who knew the ministry of Jesus, who now is in prison. So Jesus talks about facing persecution, the very next story is of a man who's in prison because of his declaration of the kingdom of God. What we see in John the Baptist is a doubt. He asks a question of, is Jesus really the one that we should be waiting for? And so we were several weeks ago in this text, and we just said it does lots of things for us, but one is it gives us permission With our doubts and to recognize that doubt and faith are not opposites. You actually kind of bring your faith in the package of your doubts to God and ask him to speak to you. But we have a bookend on the front of chapter 11 with John the Baptist, a friend who asks a question. And now at the end of chapter 12, and again we've skipped over a couple sections we'll come back to, but but if you can imagine this is another bookend and now it's not a friend but it's his family. It's a family that's asking questions about who Jesus is. And, and when we read this account in both Mark and Luke, we see that there's some antagonism or some concern that his family actually seems to be opposing him a little bit. One text actually says they wonder if he's gone mad as he's teaching about the kingdom and he's talking about him being the son of God, even proving that in his miracles. His mom and his brothers come and they wonder if he's gone crazy. And you could probably put a range on that. Maybe it's not just that he claims to be God because Mary, Mary knew that but the way it's happening, or maybe they want to protect him, but there's some sort of like hostility or controversy or opposition that happens in that space. So so just imagine Jesus teaching about the kingdom, and those closest to him are struggling. First his friend, and then his family. And you can find yourself in that space as you encounter the commands of Jesus, the, the call on Jesus to your life to say, hey, to follow me is to declare allegiance that would necessarily put you in opposition to others. But in that space, that's the context that this passage comes. And I just take some time there because everything comes to us in a context. You woke up this morning in a certain context. You experienced Mother's Day in a kind of of context. And maybe it was only joy, and you got soggy pancakes, and you got warm orange juice, and you got little kids who were singing at you, and it was a wonderful day. But for a lot of us, there's some jagged edges, and there's loss and longing. There's, there's real loss of, of people who have passed away. There are things that are not the way you wish they were, even with your relationship with your kids. Those who long to have children and can't, those those affected by abortion, those who are battling with infertility, those who are in spaces where this morning has a context where your heart is kind of troubled and sad. I say that because I think this text would speak to us wherever we are, whether this morning was a really fun, exciting day. And I think I want to take time as a family to celebrate. I always want to honor the pain that's in the room, but not to diminish the joy that should be there as well. So moms, we love you and we are so, so, so thankful. And I pray this text would actually free you, not to put your identity in your motherhood, but to put it in Jesus that would actually put you in a place where you could enjoy your motherhood in ways that didn't crush you, that didn't put pressure on you to maintain something or prove something or earn something. You could just be first a daughter of God, reconciled to the father through the death of his son, filled with the spirit so that you could be a mom to the glory of God without the crushing weight of trying to prove yourself. And for those who this has a lot of loss and a lot of pain to it, would you also hear this as a a healing, reorienting word, that it's not your family relationships that are your primary concern? It's not even the place of your primary love. It's not the place of your primary identity, which is a word that we need to hear all the time, but particularly today, there's a, a message to women about motherhood that actually hints at validating you. And so to hear that you don't have to be a mom to be well-loved, I think, is actually freeing and maybe actually healing as well. So, so if that's the way Jesus sets this thing up, the text is actually pretty simple. It's just a few verses. As we walk through it, I just want to name what he's actually saying. And then we'll talk about how it's good news. And then we'll try to make some application to, to our church. Family, Because essentially what Jesus is doing is saying that there's a family that's built on belief that's more important than a family that's built through blood. There's a DNA of faith that's more powerful and more potent than there is human earthly DNA. That's his main idea. And again, this is really, really good news. And I I don't know where you were the last couple of weeks as we were walking through both Sabbath and this idea of work, but we made the statement that the story you find yourself in interprets for you both your rest and your work. And I think the story that you're telling yourself about who you are and what you need also kind of sets up family and what it means to be in a family as well. In the same way that Jesus wanted to recalibrate work and rest, the last couple of, of messages that we were in, I think he wants to recalibrate how we understand And I want to say, particularly for those of you who family is a really pleasant thing, it's not just a healing word, it's a reorienting word in ways that actually would put us in a spot where we could fully enjoy what God has given us without asking it to be too much. So so what does Jesus say? Why is that good news? And how do we apply it? Go with me back in verse 46. It's on page 818 of Matthew 12. He says, while he was still speaking, right, so there's a context, and I've kind of walked through that. With this really fast. He said, While he was still speaking to people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to them, who, they replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, those who were in the room with him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Now, in this passage, what we see is that Jesus is not dismissing his family necessarily. And the fact that Matthew doesn't put controversy here. Matthew wants to highlight not the opposition with his family, but the welcome of all who would trust in Jesus to be in the family of God. Matthew wants to highlight for us, there's an invitation to all who would actually trust. He says, these are those who are in my family. This is my mother." and my brothers. There's two things I want to highlight as we ask what this text says. One is that, that there's a belief that, that comes into the family of God that's not the same as simply being born. And then we'll talk about behavior, not blood that shapes us. So, so belief, not being born, is what makes us into the family of God. Now, for the Jews in the first century, this would have been a provocative word. It's a word of welcome to us, but it would have, a, have a, an oppositional edge to it to them because they so valued family. It was everything for them. It determined what your career was. It determined where you lived, your economic status, who you married, who arranged your marriages. Everything was about your family. And in fact, it was through the family line of the Hebrews that, that God was blessing all of the world. And so they saw their family as a way for wealth, for prosperity, for identity, for security. And for Jesus to stop and say, hey, there's a a family that's more than just the blood that I'm related to, it comes by faith, would have been both controversial as well as freeing. It would have reoriented things in the room in such a way that they, they would have seen that the kingdom of God is changing how we relate to God. That Jesus' entrance into the world was changing how we relate to God. It was no longer by kind of the birth line of the covenant people. There was going to be new birth that shaped us into the people of God. There's a book about singleness that's really beautiful called Redeeming Singleness. And he takes some time just to highlight this. And he says, you know, in the Old Testament, there was marital blessings and covenant blessings that came out of the family. And then he says this, but true blessing is ultimately not found in having children and the family, even perfect children like Jesus but rather truly hearing the word of God and keeping it. Therefore, the fount of true blessing is not to be found in the traditional values of having a great physical family as good and satisfying and rich and rewarding as that can be. Rather, true blessing is ultimately found in righteousness before God and having a right relationship with him. It is what Jesus was about to offer and accomplish for simple people through his atoning death on the cross. True blessing is righteous standing before a righteous God and sharing in the community of the saints in an eternal inheritance before the throne. Here alone is where ultimate blessing is to be found. In the ancient world, in a shame and honor culture, everything was about your family. So actually, maybe they imagine as they bring this request from the mother and brothers of Jesus to Jesus, he would have stopped the show, discarded everybody else, and turned to them. And that he didn't do that actually says something valuable to us about who is welcome into the family of God. If the family is what shapes everything, then the family you come from was about status and, and bringing honor to the family was your highest importance and bringing shame to the family was the worst thing you could possibly do. So in a shame and honor culture, your birth family was everything. Even your name would be tied to who your father was for forever. You were known as so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, the daughter of so-and-so. It was everything. Okay, so for Jesus to say, hey, the family of God comes through not a bloodline, but through belief, means that wherever you come from, whatever you've experienced, whatever your family background is, whether it's a religious background or a non-religious background, you can come into the family of God. Jesus is just simply saying this beautiful that we kind of receive now is kind of normal, but it would have been so provocative to hear Anyone who will believe can come in to the family with equal standing. The New Testament says things like there's no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female. There's no class system in the family of God based on who your parents were. Implications of that mean there's nothing that you could have done, either positive or negative, that would either earn or disqualify you to come into the kingdom. Jesus is saying, my brothers and my mother are those who are here following me. Those who identified as doing the will of the Father, which we'll talk about in a second. So it's not through, through blood, it's through faith. So here's a passage in John chapter 1. Because actually the, the people of God, the, the family of God, the, the bloodline of God actually rejected Jesus. So in John 1 verse 9, we say this, the true light speaking of Jesus, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus is pointing to a new kind of birth that's available not by blood, but by faith. He's actually keeping his promise to be a father to all the nations, a way for all people who would simply trust in God to come into the family of God. And he does it in such a way that doesn't devalue our earthly families, but actually redeems them in ways that we can enjoy them in their rightful place. Jesus has a way of actually honoring the kingdom of God and this spiritual family without pushing his mother and brothers away. They're actually welcome in the family as well if they'll simply believe. He, he values them without pushing them away. So, so, the, so the bloodline comes by faith in Jesus's shed blood. That's the thing he wants to say. There's a, a welcome and then he wants to say, Being in this family looks like something. So look in verse fifty. It says forever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and Mother. Now this is tricky a little bit to talk about doing something to be in the family. So ever since the Protestant Reformation, we've struggled with the idea of faith and works and how do they fit together. There was a a move to correct an overemphasis on works making you right with God in the Reformation that brought around faith alone as the way that we're saved. But we sometimes shift too far and say it's faith that's by itself or all alone. It doesn't matter what you do. And what this passage helps us see is that that that's not consistent or even known in the scriptures. There's no faith that doesn't look like something. So he says, who is it that comes in the kingdom? It's the ones who do The will of my father and if you're thinking wait I thought it was by faith alone and Christ alone by grace we would say absolutely what Jesus is saying here is that this faith is actually practical it it actually looks like something so let me just kind of tie a couple of verses real quick so he's saying in this text it's those who do the will of my father who are in the kingdom and I'm saying it's those who trust in Jesus who are in the kingdom and you might be going hey those feel like two different things a couple of passages to talk about the will of the Father as belief in Jesus. Would you write this down? John 6, 40 says this. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. What is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is that we would look to the Son and believe in Him. To do the works of the Father, the Father wants you to actually trust in the Son. Later in Matthew in this parable of the lost sheep, Jesus will say in Matthew 18:14, "So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should actually perish, but that the lost would be found. That is the will of the Father to come and rescue those that are lost." But that rescue isn't academic in our heads. It actually looks like something. So for Jesus to say, those who are following after me, they they do the will of the Father, means they look like the family looks. There's a family resemblance. So it's not just faith that's disconnected from reality. It's faith that's actually in the most real thing in the universe that then begins to change and reorient everything about us. So I don't know how strong like the family resemblance is in your family if you look like your parents or if you look like your siblings and maybe you're adopted and you're wondering like, I wonder what my birth mom or birth dad actually looks like. There's a strong family resemblance in in my family. Like on my mom's side, it's like freaky the way that my grandfather and my uncles like look almost identical my mom has shown me pictures of my grandfather who I never met and went oh that's uncle Howard and she's like no that's your grandfather oh that's that's uncle Vincent no that's your grandfather and I have I have an Edna and a Vincent and a Howard those are my that's my family tree on that side so there's a a, a, a pattern of hairstyle that's pretty consistent <laughs> and there's also a size that's pretty I have uncles that are like six seven and six six I and mean, this is like big German farmer stock on that one side well, it's kind of passed down into my family. So I have an older brother who, who spiritually is like a father to me. He's actually the one who led me to Christ when I was 12 years old. He's four years older than me. And I don't think we look a ton alike, but everybody around us totally thinks we do. So we're growing up in kind of two different spaces as, as married guys. We've lived the last 20 years apart from each other. But when I was a youth pastor in Wichita, he would come and visit, and literally kids would hand him money for camp, like, to sign up. We look that much alike. And when I go to his church in Dallas... Every single time, it's so predictable. They go, oh my gosh, you look just like your brother. And then I'll say, I know it's crazy. And they'll go, oh my gosh, you sound just like your brother. And then I'll say, I know it's freaking. They'll go, oh my gosh, that's exactly what he would say if he was right here. So you look like him. You sound like him. You actually say the kind of words that he would say. And here's the deal. We haven't lived in the same community for like 20 years. But it's a strong, strong, strong family resemblance. Okay, I think... That's what this is about when Jesus says, it's those who do the will of my Father who are in the kingdom, who are in the family. It's actually a call to a practical faith that looks like something. There is a family resemblance that we have that's not based on our human DNA. It's not your eye color and your male pattern baldness and your height and your weight. It's not those things. It's actually about your character. It's about your holiness. It's about the way you live your life. The Father has given us descriptions of what His children look like. And Jesus is saying it's those who are trusting in Jesus in such a way that it's spilling out into their life and they look like something. Those are the ones who are in my family. So so the family line doesn't come by blood. It comes by belief. And that belief actually has a behavior to it. I think that's simply what Jesus wants to say. And it would have pushed in this community something that reoriented their values. It would have changed their understanding of like who was welcome into the kingdom. And for all of us in the room, who didn't come from Jewish family descent. This is the best news ever to hear. We can be welcomed in, not based on who our parents were or what they did, or even what we have done, but based on what Jesus has done for us, for all who would believe, He gave the right to become children of God. Okay, as we think about family today, that's some massively reorienting hope for us to give us a space where we actually think about what's priority, what family actually gets our priority. When we think about the way Jesus has already told us that we'll be at odds often with our family if we follow Him, He says, I came actually not to bring kind of a unity, but actually a division in families where you have some who trust in me and some who don't. That they'll find yourself in spots where you're opposed to your brothers and your mother and to your father as you give your allegiance to me. There's something about the priority of the family of God that Jesus is naming for us here right smack in the middle of his gospel, which is a call to us to allegiance. It also is a call to us to kind of heal and reorient The longings and things we think about family, the places where we've wondered like where my family fits into my life and how important my family actually is and what do I do with the wounds that I have. So let me just talk for a second about why this is good news. Can I give you four things? And there's probably hundreds, but let me just give you four. First, this provides a place for everyone to belong regardless of your background or achievement. Everyone is welcome into the family of God, regardless of whether or not you're married, whether or not you're single, regardless of what you've done in your past, what you will do in the future, regardless of your children or how they're doing, whether or not you're married in ways that you actually have a fruitful marriage or a struggling marriage, whether you've been divorced, whether you've grown up in the church or not grown up in the church. There is a place for everyone to belong. Jesus stretched out his hands and he says, those who are actually following me, these are the ones who are in my family. To talk about the kingdom of God and the family of God says there's a place for everyone to belong regardless of your background, which pushes against both pride and shame. Secondly, it protects against an idolatry of the family. To talk about the priority of the family of God protects us against valuing our human families too much and not undervaluing them, but sometimes we believe the lie that it really is the place where we have to build an identity for us. And so it's in our wifing or in our husbanding or in our parenting that we actually find hope and identity by saying there's a family of God that's come by faith to us. It pushes against the idolatry of the family, especially for those who your family is giving you everything you long for. The easy thing for you would be to trip up there and think that you both deserve that and that God is now showing some sort of special favor that is meritous for you. Rather than receiving it with joy, you could actually put pressure on that thing to hold on to it and maintain it. Many of us deal with the crushing weight of maintaining the reputation and identity we have as it relates to our families. Either getting married one day or or staying married and the way your kids are, and the ways your spouses actually has has too much power in your life when it comes to your identity. And social media is not helping us at all here, as we think about kind of pseudo images of family that we compare ourselves to. But there's a crushing weight, and then a corresponding like freedom from that weight if we'll simply look to Jesus as the one who welcomes us into the family. It protects against the idolatry of the family that, that is. Taking a really good thing that God has given us and making it an ultimate thing. And so your kids' schedule and and their achievements, if you're not careful, you will put identity in those things. You'll tie value and worth to how they're doing. It's why your kids make you more anxious than anybody else. It's why their, their questions and their struggles, you could actually tolerate that in somebody else's life, some other friendship, but when it's your children and their questions and their ire and their looks, I'm speaking hypothetically, of course, when it thinks of those spaces, that's why it activates things inside of you like nobody else does. Because you, I, actually put identity and value. I subtly make the mistake of putting worth in my parenting. And to hear that there's a family that belongs to the kingdom of God by faith has a way of helpfully undercutting that current that would sweep us away, believing that it's the value of our families, the goodness of our families, the success of our families that actually gives us value and worth. Lots of application for you, whether it's going well or it's going poorly, but let's talk about the family as the kingdom of God by faith protects against the common idolatry of the family. Third, it has the power to heal family wounds and longings because Jesus makes a way for us to come into this family by his blood. And it's his blood, not our DNA that pulls us in. And so that blood that he shed on the cross is powerful to forgive us and to heal and transform. So to talk about the family of God and the entrance into that by trusting in the shed blood of Christ heals us from the wounds and longings of our families, our own failures The failures of others, the places where we've had longings and wounds that have been given to us in ways that we feel crushed by or overwhelmed by, those things have a reorienting kind of healing power when we look to Jesus as the one who gives us family. It doesn't take away all the sadness. It doesn't take away the pain, but it puts it in a place where we can rest it on the refuge that Jesus provides for us through his shed blood. To talk about the primary orientation of the Christian being in the family of God by faith has the power to actually heal so that we could forgive, so we could ask for forgiveness. And it has the power to change family patterns that we've been given, that we are living into out of reflex. Those patterns can actually be transformed and changed. It has the power to heal family wounds and longings if we recognize the fact that we come into this family in the kingdom of God through faith in the shed blood of Christ. And then fourthly, and maybe maybe um, one that you need to hear this morning, talking about the family of God as our primary relationship gives us a portrait to guide us when we don't know what to do. Most of us come from families where we're trying not to repeat patterns. We're trying to heal from patterns, but that kind of puts us in a place where we're not quite sure what to do, and so you find yourself in a situation where you're jammed up not knowing what to do. You know you don't want to say what your parents said. You know you don't want to say what their parents said to them, but you're not quite sure what to do instead. To talk about the family of God as the primary relationship for the Christian is to give us a portrait and guidance to look to, Here's the crazy thing. God could have made babies any way he wanted to. He didn't need families and marriage and even sex to do that. He could have done it through photosynthesis if he wanted to. But he chose to give us family units so that we had a category of a father. And we had a category of a family so that when he unveils the mystery in Ephesians of the church, he can talk about a family here that's being formed as brothers and sisters who are united by the blood of Christ. And he didn't have to do marriage, but he did so that we had a a category of love and acceptance and desire and romance and delight from a husband who is God to a bride who is his people. So those two portraits, the family and marriage, create pointers to God himself, which means when we find ourselves in places where we don't know what to do, we look to God's word and ask, what is he calling his people to do? And I'm invited to actually live that out in my family. The family is the primary context that we actually live out our gospel calling. And in that space, we're not just asking what are all the passages say mother and father, and then we're asking what all the passages that talk about the kingdom of God say, and how do I live that out in my family? It gives a reorienting portrait to us of what love and sacrifice and service and forgiveness would actually look like. For those of us who just feel like we're launched out into adulthood with no reference point, to hear that there's a family of God that Christ has established gives us a place to actually find a bearing, kind of a true north, a way to think about these relationships in ways that can actually move towards redemption and healing. We're not just left for what we received and inherited from our earthly families. And a lot of us received a lot of great things and then there's lots of jagged edges that we pulled in as well. And this text would free us to look to Jesus, look to the love of the Father, ask for the Spirit's help to be the one that actually helped us know what it looked like to engage in these relationships. So the family of God, all the passages about what it means to follow Jesus now get applied to our human relationships. So, so what difference does this make when we think about even this church as a family Think about your, your family. What I hope you've heard lots of times already is that what Jesus is saying is healing, it's reorienting, it's freeing, it removes some of the crushing weight so that you can actually now move towards people and serve and sacrifice and care for them and not demand that they meet your needs or give you identity. Not, not demand that they satisfy some longing inside of you to finally make you okay. Looking to Jesus as the one who makes you okay. Looking at him as the one who welcomes you into the family. A secure family by his own blood sets you free to actually take risks with people. Here's some places I think we could apply that as this church family. This family thinking about the father as our father, Christ as our brother. This is a family that God has established by, by faith. What could it look like here? It could look like forgiveness and hope for change, right? The way we come into this family is by accepting by grace the blood of Christ on our behalf so that we could actually be forgiven and free. And that must be a primary way that we relate to each other. So, so forgiveness gets to mark this, this family here at 83rd and State Line as we think about walking with each other. And it actually that provides a ton of hope for change where we feel stuck and those around us feel stuck, we don't have to hold against one another the things we've experienced in these relationships because we come into this family as one who is forgiven and free. Secondly, I think if we embrace this idea that God is the one who's making the family, then we can actually embrace awkward moments as a family because we're not asking this family to satisfy us or engage kind of the longings of our heart in ways that actually would would complete us, Christ is the one who's doing that. So there's room in these relationships for things to be a little bit awkward. As our kids came into adolescence, we had this epic moment in kind of our family history where we gathered around the dining room. Everybody put hands in the middle, like you would go team, put our hands in. But instead of go team or win, it was Embrace the awkward on three. One, two, three. Embrace the awkward. Just going, have hey, we never been parents of teenagers? You've never been a, a teenager before. They're about to step into some really awkward moments. Can we just embrace that? Hey, as a church family, that God is like seen to give us like quadruplets and um, quintuplets pretty fast, and this thing is growing really rapidly, can we have space and grace to embrace the awkward as a church family. To say there's going to be some moments that just feel kind of weird around here, but that's okay because we're not connecting to each other because of what we need from each other. As far as identity, we get to actually serve each other and relate to each other because the Father is the one who makes us right with Him. So, so single or married, longings or, or, or wounds, the things that you feel in your heart you can bring into this room and all are welcome. Your awkwardness is tolerated and welcomed is what that means. And as you feel that, you can actually extend that grace to other people. It would also mean that we could allow people to grow. You think about the way people are, are in developmental stages and kids grow in a family. We could actually allow and expect The saving grace of Jesus is powerful enough to transform us where people in your life, in this room, are allowed to grow. You don't have to hold them in contempt for things that happened two decades ago, ten ten months ago, last week. You can actually allow them to change. As far as the family value too, everyone gets a chance to participate. This whole thing is like a family meal where we, we don't come to kind of be kind of performed at, we come to participate. We come to actually bring our gifts and our longings, and we actually engage with each other in ways that we get a chance to participate. So, oftentimes, the needs that we experience, we become the solution for. We get a chance just to grab a plate or grab a broom or grab something to come and help. Everyone gets a chance to participate. I think also this family, because it's marked by the grace of Jesus, is a family that should celebrate that should actually enjoy being together, that could actually find space and time to simply enjoy the grace of God in each other. The reason why we've done things like a cornhole tournament and this kind of engagement with flowers with our women and the reason why you're welcome to our our potluck dinner after our members meeting is simply to create some space where we can celebrate what God's doing and get some time together. So our kids get busier and busier. We are fighting tooth and nail for like just one family night. Just one guarded night where we're home together, looking at each other in the eye, sitting down. And we get more time with that, but we want one kind of focused time because we need space to actually hear. And how are you doing? And what's your day been like? And it's amazing to me the different conversation we have around the dinner table versus when we're eating and standing in the kitchen. Have you had that meal? Where you're like holding a plate. You're actually having a meal. Everyone's in the room. But it's quite a bit different than when you're sitting down together, simply making some time to hear and listen. For us as a family, one of the values I think we have, if we come from all different places, is to just sit down and celebrate and get some time together. And last, maybe, and maybe, maybe most important, is that this is a family that should continue to grow as we extend the grace of Jesus and invite other people to trust and believe in him. What Jesus is saying in this text is that anybody who will trust in him is welcome into the family of God. That, that includes your family members. That includes your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends. It includes people that don't yet know him, that nobody is too far gone. This family is meant to be ever-growing, not just numerically in our church attendance, but growing by faith in the family as people are actually born. This rebirth and new birth that happens by faith should be a primary focus of our family, to see to see reproduction take place. It's it's a call for us to share the grace of God that we've received. It's not something to protect, it's something to actually offer and to share, to share the good news of what Christ came to do. What he's saying in this text is provocative, but it is a life-giving. To hear there's a way for you to be forgiven and free, to be welcomed, to belong, to to deal with all of your wounds, all of your pain, to actually have a a reference point for how to go forward and to remove the idolatry of looking to something else to satisfy you, you could actually look to Jesus as the one who would rescue you. You can receive that yourself this morning and you can extend that to others by way of sharing the good news of what Christ came to do that's the kind of family that he came to build. And I love that he says, hey, these people, these disciples, these are the ones who are going to go change the world. He's going to say in Matthew 28 to go and share the good news with other people. These are the ones who are my brothers and my mothers. These are the ones who actually are in the family to come and share. So there's a value of sharing the good news with other people. I don't know where you find yourself on this Mother's Day. Hopefully it's, there's a lot of pleasant things and there's good memories and there's things that you can find Opportunity to celebrate, but hearing that there's a family that God offers you that you didn't deserve or earn, that Jesus actually laid down his life to make possible, gives you a sense of hope for not just today, but for your entire future. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to trust Christ and come into his family. What Jesus did on the cross makes a way for you to be forgiven and free, and the biblical framework of adoption applies to faith. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, would you just Celebrate that. There's probably lots of longings you have and lots of things that you wish were different, but would you just, this morning, celebrate the fact that you've been adopted into the kingdom as a daughter or son of God who's been forgiven and set free, and there's hope for you because of that. Would that like bring good news to your wounds? Would that bring good news to your longings? Would that bring kind of a reorienting impact to the things that are going well, that you wouldn't overvalue them so you could actually value the kingdom? Would you just sit in this space In a moment, and thank God for his adopting posture, the sacrifice of his son, in a way that he welcomed you through great expense to himself. So you don't have to do anything except believe. It's all who received him, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, and he made it possible by dying on a cross. So we take communion as a a way to reread our adoption papers to go, hey, this is the way it was possible to come into his kingdom. So if you're a follower of Jesus, i by to take communion with great joy, remembering how you're welcomed into the family. So the bread represents his broken body and the juice represents his shed blood. You'll take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and you'll remember what Christ did to adopt you into his family. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there's some prayers in the back of that bulletin that would give you some examples of what it could sound like for you to pray and ask him to speak to you. But if this morning you're ready to trust Jesus, if you're ready to come into his family, if you're ready to receive him and look to his cross as the thing that makes you right with God. And I want to invite you to come take communion for the first time and let's talk about it after the service, but what it means to actually follow Jesus. So we'll have service here in the front and then we'll have a gluten station over here to my right and your left. There's some individual packets as well, if that's more comfortable for you. Let me pray for us and then we'll celebrate how God welcomed us into his family. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Would you come now in ways that we couldn't manufacture to heal and reorient and teach and encourage and rest? Would you, would you put salve on wounds? Would you strengthen feeble legs? Would you amplify the joy that people feel? God, I pray that you would fill the room with a sense of gladness and celebration. The way a, a loud family meal, there's lots of laughter and joy. Would you do that in this room as we think about the meal that you prepared for us? the way you welcomed us, your grace and mercy that satisfied everything that we needed to be satisfied so that we could be in relationship with you. Would you do that beautiful work right now in this moment? And would you stir faith to those who don't yet believe? Would you call them to the table? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come when you're ready.